Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the ten young bridesmaids. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten young bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now, five of them were wise, and the other five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't bring oil for them. But the wise one took their lamps and also brought containers of oil. When the groom was late in coming, they all became drowsy and went to sleep. But at midnight there was a cry, look, the groom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. But the foolish bridesmaids said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps have gone out. But the wise bridesmaids replied, no, because if we share with you, there won't be enough for our lamps and yours. We have a better idea. You go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the groom came. Those who were ready went with him into the wedding. Then the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep alert, because you don't know the day or the hour. Okay, I can tell by the uh uh-huhs that you get this text. (laughs) Um, In preaching world, a lot of preachers don't want to preach this one. Oh! This is why we it is this is why I do uh, the lectionary calendar because it gets us preaching those texts that we really don't want to preach. But I'm just gonna really boil it down for us. One is men are always late, aren't they? No, 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 no. But what we got going on here is a wedding, right? And um, and in uh, the Middle East and in India and in many cultures, not in the United States, a wedding can be for days and days. And so they're there at the wedding, right? The bridesmaids and um, hanging out and waiting for the groom. And they've got their oil. Who has the oil? The wise ones. Who's like, ah, eh, we'll get some oil at the fast uh, 7-Eleven, right? We'll get, you know... Right, right. We'll 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 figure it out. We'll figure it out. Okay, so that we've got that, and what happens? Time passes. Time goes on. They run out of oil. Now the wise ones had oil. Amen. So when the groom finally gets there, because it's all about him. Amen. No, just kidding. It's um then. They're ready to go in and have the party, and then what happens? They are shut out. This story is about preparation. This story is about not a faith life that we just do when it's convenient for us. It means doing a faith life in which we need to prepare, at which we need to make things are in order, right? It means we need to study. It means we need to be in community and take time to go to church. It means we ask questions. It means we study the texts we don't want to study. Because faith life is good when times are good. But the faith life is what we need to rely on when times are not so good. Amen? Things are all over the place in this world right now. 
but it's going to be people and their faith's lives to overcome the violence and overcome the name-calling and overcome the hate. It's really good to know there are marches going on all over the world to make sure we are against anti-Semitism, that we are against uh, Islamophobia, and then that we can all be preaching peace, especially in this time when we have living veterans to remind us what war is really like. Amen? So we're going to get there. But this prep story is also for the micro. It's for us. We can't just expect that church is going to happen by us just showing up at 1015. Amen? Right? We, <laughs> sorry, didn't mean to meddle in people's lives on that one. But the choir comes and practices ahead of time, and they practice on Thursdays so they can present to you not just music, but excellent music and well-played music. And music, in fact, that we can release ourselves and let God in as we're singing. That takes prep. Amen? I don't just get up, even though some, sometimes it might look like it, and just preach to you words off the top of my head. No, I've done some prep. I've done some memorization. I want to make sure that you're getting a quality piece of work. We need to have church meetings so that we can prepare for what's going to come so we can have a vision for the church and be in mission for many. Amen? It takes prep. We have to have tools. So that's what we're doing, right? in our faith life. I want to remind you how deep this goes by a story from World War II. It's the story of the four chaplains. Can we put that uh, photo up, that slide up? It didn't get there. Oh, okay. Okay, let's imagine. I did prep. <laughs> Let's imagine, and I'm going to have to do a little reading because I want to make sure you all get this story. I was introduced to this story when I was um, chaplain at Illinois Wesleyan. And the story of the four chaplains are uh, two Protestant chaplains, a Catholic and a Jewish chaplain that went down with the Dorchester as opposed to not. I'm, I want to introduce you to them. And why I'm doing this story is it's kind of hard for us to relate to bridesmaids and grooms in uh, ancient uh, Hebrew culture, but I think we can relate to these guys that were really just an everyday guy, but they were a ship. Thank you. That's why I have the USAT Dorchester. Does that make sense now to everybody? Big ship. It had been, here's a fun story, it had been built in Newport News, Virginia, and um, it had been built as a cruise ship to, for, for fun up and down the East Coast. And then and it had a different name. And then when the war broke out, they, they cleaned it out to make it a, a ship for soldiers and a cargo ship. And what they were doing was they were taking uh, supplies, food, uh, human, you know, human aid supplies from Europe to Greenland. And then, um, and then would um, get to the states. Like, like you know, they would take stuff to Europe, and then they would come back, right? And so they're, they're on their coming back journey. And the way that uh, the rules of war, which is a 
interesting statement, right? The rules of war is um, there were um, German uh, boats, U-boats, that could, that could, that were in those waters from Europe. They just had to get so many miles from Greenland and they'd be safe. But like, like our bridesmaids, there was a time in the darkness where the ship is vulnerable. And so the captain, I guess I don't have to read it. So the captain is telling his, uh, his, 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 um, his ship people, his shipmates, right? The, the, the officers and the soldiers. I'm so not military. I'm so sorry. It's um, telling, telling the, the folks, you need to sleep with your uniform and your life jacket on and your shoes on because we are going to be vulnerable uh, for this many miles. Some did, some didn't. And so lo and behold, about a half an hour before they were in the safety of the, um, of the waters, they are shot. Two, two missiles um, shoot at them. Two torpedoes. All right, I'll go back to reading. In the early morning hours of February 3rd, 1943, First Sergeant Michael Wersch nearing, nearly gave up hope as he floated helplessly in the freezing waters of the North Atlantic. Just minutes earlier, he and almost 900 others aboard the USAT Dorchester were near safe waters when a German torpedo slammed into the engine room. Soon the Dorchester began to slip under the waves. Warsh was accepted his fate, fully aware that life expectancy in these cold waters was about 20 minutes, surrounded by hundreds of equally doomed shipmates and blinking red lights of their life preservers. It reminded him of Christmas lights. Other than burning sensation in his throat from swallowing oil-fouled salt water and some minor pain from wounds suffered when the torpedo hit, he mostly just felt numb. Resigned to losing consciousness and freezing to death shortly thereafter, his thoughts turned to courageous, selfless acts of the four army chaplains. He witnessed them just before abandoning ship. These four chaplains, according to Warish and other eyewitnesses, remained calm during the panic following the attack, first distributing life preservers and assisting others to abandon ship then giving up their own life preservers and coming together in prayer as the ship disappeared beneath the surface. The story of these four chaplains, a Catholic, a Jew, and two Protestants, stands out among the countless stories of commitment and bravery that make up the pantheon of U.S. Army as one of the finest examples of courage to God, to humans, and to country. Each, and here are their names, John P. Washington, Alexander D. Good, George L. Fox, and Clark V. Pulling. They were drawn by the tragedy of Pearl Harbor to, uh, to be in the armed forces. Each wanted more than anything to serve God by ministering to men on the battlefield. Each felt a great disappointment at being relegated to service in the rear era, area, right? In this case, the airfields and the installations of Greenland. Yet each, when the moment came, did not hesitate to put others before self and courageously offering a tenuous chance of survival with the full knowledge of the consequences. Though the chaplains had vastly different backgrounds, their similar experiences brought them together on the deck of the Dorchester. 
Each was tested at a young age and came to the realization that his would be a life of service to God. John P. Washington, born in Newark, New Jersey, on the 18th of July, 1908, was the eldest of seven children. He was the product of Irish neighborhoods, where he almost lost his life to a BB gun accident, nearly died of fever, and then lost his sister Mary to sudden illness. By the age of seven, John was on the path to the priesthood. After attending Catholic elementary and high schools, he entered seminary in Darlington, New Jersey, and was ordained on the 15th of June, 1935. After short stints in two parishes, he moved to St. Stephen in Arlington, New Jersey. Father Washington was initially turned down by the Navy after Pearl Harbor because he had poor eyesight. Oh, but he's not going get, to get, let them win. When he, came, he went back again and tested with the Army, this time he uh, used the same eye, so they couldn't tell. He figured the doctors were too busy, they wouldn't pay any attention. They didn't. So his hopes, he hoped that God would forgive his subterfuge. <laughs> in May 1942, Father Washington left for training at uh, Benjamin Harris, Indiana. After a month, he posted to Fort George Meade, Maryland. Eager to serve overseas, he applied for a transfer and a letter to the Army headquarters dated September 1942. Um, and then, then he was um, at Camp Miles Standish in Taunton, Massachusetts. And Alexander Good was born on the 10th of May, 1911, the son of a rabbi. When he was young, his parents divorced. He went to Eastern High School in Washington, D.C., where he earned medals in tennis, swimming, and track, and was an excellent student from the earliest days. He planned to follow his father's footsteps as a rabbi. He earned his bachelor degree from University of Cincinnati in 1934, followed by a degree from Hebrew Union College in 1937. Virtually penniless as a college student during the Great Depression, Alexander contemplated quitting school and giving up his dream to become a rabbi, but he believed it was God's plan for him to pursue a religious vocation. So for much of his youth, he served in the National Guard to help make ends meet. In 1935, and, uh, he and his childhood sweetheart, Teresa, daughter of a rabbi and niece of the singer Al Jolson, were married. His first assignment uh, was then uh, up that same place in Massachusetts. Uh, the Navy also turned down his application to be uh, a chaplain, but the Army took him. Thank God for this Army. <laughs> and, um, and then he went uh, to the Harvard School, and from there ends up at the same place our other pastor is. And then um, now we're going to go to... Uh, Mr. Fox, who is the one that has the Illinois connection. Where's his name? There we go. Uh, he was born in uh, Pennsylvania, gave up, grew up in Altona in a Catholic family. His rough childhood under the tyranny of an abusive father shaped him. This is George L. Fox, sorry. He's determined to escape. Uh, he enlisted into World War I before finishing high school. He also abandoned Catholicism due to the inability to reconcile the church's teachings with the abuse he received at home and a desire to leave his past behind. His gallant service in the Great War as a medic earned him the Silver Star, several Purple Hearts, a French, and a French Croix de Guerre. At the end of World War I, Fox held several jobs before entering Moody Bible Institute in 1923. Before graduation, he became an itinerant Methodist minister 
while holding a student pastorate in Downs, Illinois, that would be a suburb of Bloomington Normal, <laughs> so tiny, tiny town, he entered Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, graduated with his bachelor's degree in 1929, while holding another student pastorate in Rye, New Hampshire, Fox enrolled in Boston University School of Theology, um, also a young Martin Luther King would have been there about the same time. He assumed the pastorate of a church in Waits River, soon moved on to Union Village, then to Gilman in uh, Vermont. He was um, married um, and had four children. As with the other chaplains, Pearl Harbor drew him back to the military. In 1942, he was appointed as Army chaplain and returned to active duty at the age of 42. He then ended up at the same place in, um, in Massachusetts along now with the fourth one, Clark V. Poling, was born into a prominent family that had produced six generations of ministers. His father was a well-known radio evangelist and religious newspaper editor. Born on the 7th of August, 1910, Poling was educated in Massachusetts and New York. In high school, he played football and was student body president. There was never any doubt that he would become the seventh generation of his family to enter ministry. After studying at Hope College in Michigan and Rutgers University in New Jersey, he entered Yale University School of Divinity, after which he was ordained in the Reformed Church of America. His initial posting was at the First Church of Christ in New London, Connecticut, for a short time until he became pastor of First Reformed Church in Schenectady, New York. And after uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, he got into the Army and again goes to the base in Massachusetts where then they were deployed on the Dorchester and then um, when the uh, on January 29th the Dorchester departed St. John's Newfoundland for its fifth North Atlantic voyage hitting bad weather almost as soon as it entered upon the water in addition to the Dorchester the freighters Biscaya and Lutz escorted by U.S. Coast Guard cutters USCGC Tampa USC GC Escanaba, USCG Comanche comprised a convoy of SG-19. Its passengers included 595 soldiers and 171 civilians bound for the airbase in Greenland. In its hold were thousands of tons of equipment, food, and cargo. Merchant Marine Captain Hans Danielson skippered the ship while Army Captain Preston Kecker commanded the troops. First Sergeant Warish was the senior non-commissioned officer on board. While on his rounds, Warish observed the chaplains in a football huddle engaged in animated discussion. This is, this is when things are still good. Seeing Warish, they asked for his, help on this, for his help in getting the message out about religious services planned for an amateur talent contest, which they hoped they would serve as useful diversion for the troops, who had nothing to do except worry about trans, transitioning through Torpedo Junction, as the stretch of the dangerous waters was called. Despite heavy security, there were few secrets uh, in St. John's. German authorities had become aware that this convoy, SG-19, was bound for Greenland. So four U-boats took up stations along its route. One of those was U-233 on her maiden voyage, commanded by 26-year-old Lieutenant Commander Karl Jurg-Wachter. In the fog and the darkness, February 3rd, U-233 floated on the surface of the Wachter. Binoculars raised his eyes, studied the dark silhouettes of the SG-19 passing in the distance. 
All the ships of the SG-19 knew that the U-boat was in the area. The evening before, Captain Danielson of the Dorchester announced over the ship's public system, now hear this. This concerns every soldier. Now hear this. Every soldier is ordered to sleep in his clothes and his life jacket. Repeat, this is an order. We have submarines following us. If we make it through the night, in the morning, we will have the air protection from Blue West One, which is the code name for the air base in Greenland. And of course, we will have protection until we reach port. Between the known presence of a submarine and the rough weather, the necessitated canceling of the talent show, there would be little sleeping on the Dorchester that night. The weather abated enough within the few hours that the chaplains quickly threw together an impromptu party in the many mess area. Many of the soldiers attended, remaining until about um, 23.30. First Sergeant Warish skipped the party, choosing instead to share the hardship of the soldiers assigned to look out on the positions of the open deck in the 36 degree weather. The chaplains bid good night to the men by reminding them of, the, of Captain Danielson's warning about wearing all their clothes, including boots and gloves, along with life, life jackets, to bed. After the party, the three of the chaplains made the rounds of the ship in an attempt to raise men's spirit. Meanwhile, Father Washington said mass in the mess area and, was attended, and that was attended by men of many faiths. Early in the night, Captain Crecker had called his men together in the hold. He repeated Captain Danielson's early warning. This will be the most dangerous part of our mission. We're coming through the storm, and now we're in calm waters, and they can really spot us here. He finished with the admonition of life jackets telling the men that they were not beauty in a beauty contest. As the clock ticked past midnight, many began to breathe easier, and with the knowledge that they were near safe waters and would soon be under an umbrella of protection from Greenland-based planes. Warish was making the rounds among the troops about aboard U-233 tor torpedo man Eric Pessler prepared to fire three torpedoes. Within minutes, the three deadly fish were in the water heading toward the shadow, creeping past a distance of a thousand yards. Warish had just looked at his watch at approximately 0055 hours. One of the torpedoes ripped the Dorchester's starboard side. The ensuing explosion rent a hole near the engine room from below the wa water line to the top deck. The lights went out, steam pipes split, the bunks collapsed like cards on, a, on top of one another. The sounds of the screaming, the smell of gunpowder, ammonia filled the air. The initial explosion killed dozens outright, and a wave of cold water entering the ship quickly drowned dozens more. Nearly one-third aboard died in the first moments. In the middle of the confusion on deck was Roy Summers, a Navy gunner stationed on the Dorchester. A few months earlier, he had survived the sinking of the Dorchester's ship, sister ship, the Chatham, and he believed that he would survive this attack. Resigned to abandoning the ship, he ran aft toward the stern, but thought better of it when he realized that jumpers there were being, would bring about certain death because there were still the turning propellers, which had already breached the surface and claimed the lives of several who had already jumped. Turning around, he witnessed two of the chaplains handing out life vests and assisting soldiers as they slid down ropes to the sea below. One hysterical soldier grabbed the chaplain as if to choke him. Summers wrestled the soldier away from the chaplain and watched the soldier run down the deck toward the rising water and probably his death. 
Summers then climbed over the railing and went down a rope into the ocean. Elsewhere, on the top deck, Father Washington gave absolution to soldiers and then went over to the side. Private First Class Charles Mackle, a former professional boxer, unsuccessfully urged Washington to go over the side with the men. But instead, Chaplain Washington remained aboard as McAlee slid into the cold water. Another soldier, Walter Miller, saw knots of men in seemingly canatotic states bunched against the railings of the listing ship. Too afraid to jump into the sea, they awaited the inevitability in of being swallowed by it. Over the din, he heard a terror-filled plaintive voice repeating, I can't find my life jacket. Turning toward that voice, Miller clearly heard Chaplain Fox say, here's one soldier. He took off his own life jacket and put it on the soldier. At the same time, Navy Lieutenant John Mahoney cursed himself for leaving his gloves in his quarters. Chaplain Good stopped him from returning for his gloves and said, don't bother Mahoney, I have another pair. You can have these. Good then removed the gloves from his own hands and gave them to Mahoney. Mahoney later realized that a man preparing to abandon ship probably would not carry a second pair of gloves. Many of the survivors reported similar encounters with one or more of the chaplains. They seemed to be everywhere on deck until the very end. Many survivors reported that the four chaplains locked arms and prayed in unison as the ship sank. Whether this is part of the accurate is unimportant, for the truth is that these four chaplains sacrificed themselves for their soldiers and God that they served. First Sergeant Warish freed himself after a 10-minute struggle. He dragged himself through the passageway and over the side in time to see the Dorchester sink below the waves just 25 minutes after being struck by a torpedo. After some confusion, the Coast Guard began, to rescue, began rescue operations, saving 230 of the nearly 900 aboard and losing one Coast Guardsman in the process. These were men of faith who were prepared. These were men of faith who were able to give a calm handshake to a panicking soldier, able to give gloves, able to give a life jacket, able to give prayers. That's what our faith reminds us to do, that we are prepared so that we can be there for others when they are having their worst, worst moments. And again, God is not asking any one of us to sacrifice our lives. God is just asking us, take the time, study me, live with me, invite me in so that we can live a life and help others have the kind of life that is full of love, of graciousness, of kindness, of hope when it seems hopeless. So on this day, let us remember these four chaplains. I hope you got from their histories. They were just everyday, common, ordinary folks, some of which came up from really bad times. The only thing that made them unique but maybe not so new unique, is that they were called by God and they answered. So let us this day remember all our veterans, all those that did pass and that they have 
served to make sure that there's a legacy. And let us this day remember all those who started this church so many years ago so that there could be a legacy and that we can carry it on. Amen, amen, and amen.